this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Today's show is supported by Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes discovering great new books easier than ever. Browse their five monthly selections and get your favorite shipped to your door in a fun-to-open box. Head over to bookofthemonth.com slash bookriot to see their current selections and get your first book for just $9.99. Book of the Month, bound to delight. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 225, we're recording on Thursday, August 31st, 2017. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. It's the Hello. end of this. It's the end of the summer. It is. The dog days are officially over. Yeah, it's the last day of August, uh, the Friday before Labor Day. It's kind of the unofficial last day. Is, is Labor Day a summer holiday? I could, It's one of those interstitial you know, holidays, right? I think it's it's like the in, it's the day in between. It's the marker. Like yeah. Labor Day is the last day you're supposed to be able to wear your white shoes and your white jeans. Mm. That season is Easter to Labor Day. Or no, it's Memorial Day to Labor Day. Don't at me. But yeah. I, you know, who cares about the rules? <laughs> I'm going to a wedding on Sunday, the day before Labor Day. And ah. one of the jokes was, Everyone wear white because it's like the last possible day. <laughs> and the whole wearing white to a wedding that's not your wedding thing. I realized that was also a problem. Uh, that especially if I showed up in like a completely white suit, it would be very, it'd be very Tom Wolf of me uh, to show up that way. So I'm, anyway, the, we're, the, I think that we're starting to get the, the news is gearing up. We got a lot of news this it week. Is. And then yeah, next the, week is a book release bonanza yes, on 9 5. It's bonkers. Liberty and I are recording that episode of all the books this weekend because I'm I'll be on vacation next week. And the list of like every now and then we have this week where it's like, how are we gonna pick? We talk about eight <laughs> books every week. And it's like right. how how are we going to pick eight books out of this list? September twelfth is huge too, mm-hmm. like just a couple big ones right out of the gate. Um Yeah, good like stuff uh, the, the new um Lisbeth Salander novels, the fifth. I know uh, let's see. I think there's, a, I mean, Jasmine Ward's new book is coming mm-hmm. out the 5th or the 12th. The new Lily maybe? Tuck is coming out the 5th. Yeah, that's right. New Lily Tuck too. There's just all kinds and lots of paperback releases. I think the paperback of it. Hunger comes out this week mm-hmm. or next week. It's just a and whole bunch of stuff going in on. In a one-two punch of perfection, the new Hillary Clinton book, What Happened, ah. comes out on the 12th, right along with the new Brene Brown book called oh, Braving the Wilderness. Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> Luckily, D. Brizzle is holding off till I think October third, so you didn't, oh, yeah. you wouldn't get knocked over uh, uh, on your butt that way. Uh, I'm definitely going to be scouting airport bookstores. I fly home on the 11th, mm. and you know sometimes they make mistakes and put out big books soon. So I, I have this like perverse hope that some bookstore will break embargo, and I will happen to be in that airport, and I will get the early Hillary Clinton memoir. <laughs> I think on the fifth, I. Uh, it's been a crazy few weeks for me, and on the 5th of Tuesday, my kids will be all squared away for childcare and school and everything, and I'll, traveling will be over. I might make a little treat-yourself visit to the bookstore on the 5th and just pick some stuff up. I think that sounds like a that's, good That's a good plan. idea. Uh, speaking of new books, let's do our first sponsor. It's The End of the World Running Club by Adrian Walker. So here's the synopsis. So when the world ends and you find yourself stranded on the wrong side of the country, every second counts. No one knows this more than Edgar here. Hill. Edgar Hill. Over 500 miles of devastated wasteland stretch between him and his family. To get back to them, he must push himself to the very limit or risk losing them forever. His best option is to run, but what if his best isn't good enough? It's a powerful, a post-apocalyptic thriller. The End of the World Running Club is an otherworldly, yet extremely human story of hope, love, and the endurance of both body and spirit. It was a bestseller in the UK, sold more to 40,000 copies in the first Ooh. couple of months. So, and the, the reader likes are Station Eleven and The Martian, so it's apocalyptic, survival, one person trying to figure it out. 
it's a dystopian feel, but it has one as tones of family and themes of resilience, hope, and the strength of a human spirit. I think that means it's not like the road sad kind of situation. I think <laughs> that's what they're not saying. A, not, not the a road. depressing, desolate situation. The anti, it's like, that should be a thing, like the, the anti-read alike, the mm-hmm. anti-read alike. Um, so for running enthusiasts and those that are not, this is a classic underdog story, and you'll find yourself rooting for Ed to keep on fighting and to find meaning in his life. Thanks to the End of the World Running Club by Adrian Walker for sponsoring this week's show. All right. How about some follow-up? Yeah, follow-up. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Eric Hauser, the uh, teacher from a small town in Texas who had self-published a children's book featuring Pepe the Frog, the sort of alt-right mascot of sorts, I guess, and that he had been fired from his job for that. We did get some interesting intel and mm-hmm. insight from Bookwright Insiders members who are also attorneys who were explaining some of the nuanced reasons why, um, especially as an educator, he maybe shouldn't have gotten fired from that position because of how the First Amendment works, especially for government employees. Um, but there's interesting, I think, weird follow-up because the creator of Pepe the Frog it turns out, never intended for the character to be a political symbol. So he has lashed out at, um, what is the guy's name, Eric Hauser, threatening mm-hmm. to sue him and forcing him to halt all distribution of the book. Hauser admitted that he frin- he infringed on intellectual property rights by using Pepe the Frog. And the creator, Fury, uh, his lawyers wrote that the book espoused racist, Islamophobic, and hate-filled themes, included allusions to the alt-right movement, and was deliberately targeted at children. And he didn't stop there. He required, um, as part of the settlement, that Hauser give all profits of the book to the Council Council on American-Islamic Relations, which is the largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization in the country. It's not a ton of money. It's $1,500. Mm-hmm. But um, the principle there is really interesting. And I did not, I didn't know this, that Pepe the Frog, what the origins of Pepe the Frog were. So I was really surprised to see that headline of like Pepe the Frog founder making author give money to Muslim rights group. Um, so I guess in the long run, a good result yeah this guy i think this uh this uh government or teacher it was a teacher principal administrator a, I, can't I think he was like an assistant principal assistant, yeah i think he wily coyoted himself right i mean he's like you know like he's trying to he's trying to you know get this uh, this contraption going to like i don't know subvert and be alternative and alt-right or whatever and it just blew up in his face and he's just standing there with soot from the rocket that just just blew up in his face because this went so sideways he lost his job he has to give all the money to him uh, a muslim organization um and good and good for, uh mm-hmm. the other piece of follow-up we got i think in the insiders chat was um about some first amendment stuff related to government employees which we didn't talk about when we were discussing this because we we're saying you know your job yeah. If you're, especially if you're in an at-will state, politics aren't a protected class. But the the situation's a little murkier, and understandably so, if you're a government employee, state, local, what have you, um, which you can see why that might be, because that actually is the government saying what you can and can't say. But that's not doesn't really apply here for a variety of reasons. But it was just a wrinkle we didn't address, and I just wanted to mention that um, that's another thing to keep in mind when we talk about these sorts of things. I had heard that the creator of Pepe the Frog was has been distraught over the future life um, of his creation. I don't know the story of how this happens. Uh, if this was a book-related thing, it's like, there's an annotated episode right, of how Pepe the Frog, how, you know, how, how this, this sort of uh, toad became, um, uh, got its wart, so to speak. Um, but, <laughs> oh, Jeff. But, but, but uh, I'm, I was glad to see this guy take it seriously. Um, the creator, he's, he's actively, first of all, protecting his copyright, but also doing it in a way to, to actively fight the, the ways it's been used. So um, I was glad to see that. Okay. Um, this is story. We talk about this from time to time where an author's unfinished works, what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, either when they've been, you know, if they have had instructions given or haven't had instructions given or what, to, what what's the moral and ethical and, and artistically correct thing to do. And it varies by situation. If they've left a directive, if they haven't, sometimes it's more cut and dried, sometimes it's not. Um, but this is a story about Terry Pratchett who died a couple of years ago, um, and he uh, he requested that his unfinished works be destroyed. Uh, so his hard drive was crushed by a vintage John Fowler and Company steamroller named the Lord Jericho. 
at the Great Dorset Steam Fair. This all it's sounds just, like something out of a Terry Pratchett novel. It's just the novel. most perfect. Um, it is just ahead the of the opening thing. of a new exhibition of the author's life and work. Um, he died in 2015, so yeah, it was a couple of years ago. Um, so, and, and I guess Pratchett had told Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, who they co-authored Good Omens together, which I don't think we talked about. It's getting made into a BBC series starred David Tennant and um, uh, Michael Sheen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, which should be good. But anyway, that, that that's what happened. There's pictures. It's a hard drive that got crushed. Um, so there you go. It's so good. You know, we both usually come down on the side of release the unpublished or mm-hmm. unfinished works because this person is dead and it doesn't make any difference to them. And for the good of literary culture, let us have access to these things. Like there's been, you know, some nuance there, but we both tend to typically come down on that side. But I'm making an exception because mm. this request is perfect. And it's so perfect and like just so of Terry Pratchett to say, not just destroy my hard drive, but steamroll it. And that they did that in the manner that they did it um, is just a really, I think, lovely indication of who he was and an indication of how fun he was and how fun his work was. And I'm all for honoring this. So I guess what I'm saying is you can get around the Shinsky O'Neill request that all oh, of your oh can you? Works. Can you though? You can get around the Shinsky part of the barricade. I'm, I'm not <laughs> happy about this, Rebecca. Because you want the Terry Pratchett. Well, I just uh, again, uh, I don't think. Of, of course, it's right. It's not wrong. Let's put it that way. It's not wrong to honor the author's request. It is the request. It's a legal document. Like you'd have to. I don't know. I don't know what the punishment would be if the estate was like. You know what? We're in the in the interest of his legacy and artistic culture and knowledge and blah blah literary history. We're gonna we're not gonna destroy this. Maybe we won't publish them. Maybe we will. But we just don't feel good about this. We think we owe it to posterity. Um, in this case, to you know get around this particular bequest. I don't know. Surely it's actionable. If someone wanted to sue, I guess they could they could get it. So it's not really certainly this was the legally correct thing to do. But and I understand the author doesn't want their stuff out there after they're gone. But I don't know. I, there's just so many stories of things that people wanted destroyed that didn't get destroyed, and the world is better for it. Um, because this serves Pratchett's wishes and legacy, but he's one guy, and everyone else out there is a little poorer for not being able... I mean, who knows what's on there? I mean, I mean what? he published 70 novels. That's enough. Okay, but if you're a huge fan, I, I don't, I, I don't like this. I, I don't. I mean, what, I'm not saying that someone sort of, sort of nabbed it and what leaked it on the dark web. I don't even know what you do with stuff. I don't even know what the dark web is. I just <laughs> can you even words. find the dark web? No, I can't. I couldn't find it with uh, you know a team, the guy from Mister Robot at my side. <laughs> I, I had no chance of finding it. I, I just, I, I don't know what people are so. I, I just don't know that the, what the authors are so afraid of. If there's something embarrassing, I guess like. I don't think we have we should have access to like their personal letters if they don't want that. But you know what? We just did this whole episode of Mary Shelley uh, where there's all these letters and journals that weren't destroyed that could have been um, that we don't have all this stuff if if people destroyed. I, I just think it's a shame. I, I don't know that it serves anybody well except perhaps, possibly the author's ego, which is complete. I'm saying that's complete within the right to ask this. I get it. But I just think the weight of good still falls still falls so hard on the side of posterity that I, that I wish authors wouldn't make these kinds of requests. I just I just just how I feel about it. So anyway, well, it's fine. Uh, that, is it fine though, Rebecca? No, because no, you're I'm, just I'm wrong in this case because no. this is delightful. Well, it's, it can be delightful <laughs> and wrong. Much like, much like putting chocolate syrup on a peep. I don't even know what's happening on that side of the microphone. Well, I'm just today. saying that's delightful and wrong. <laughs> I, it, that's not delightful. That's just gross. Mm, well, yeah, see, now, now, now you're now just who's gross. Wrong. Peeps, now who's who wrong? eats peeps, Jeff O'Neill? Oh, um, okay, like folks, at her, from the at her about Pratchett. that. At her, at her about the peeps. <laughs> Actually, we're in candy corn season now, so let's just oh, argue gosh, about that. I hate worst. those things. It's the worst. You mean um, you mean the devil's clown teeth? Yeah, I don't like yeah. those either. <laughs> yes, those. Um, I'd like to hear from the diehard Terry Pratchett fans in the Book Riot audience, because we know you're out there. Oh, yeah. Are you pro steamroll? the hard drive or do you wish that whatever was on that hard drive you as a diehard Terry Pratchett fan could see let us know podcast Mm -hmm. at bookriot.com especially if you agree with me I just let that lie go go your sponsor you're up next I'm not gonna I'll let you have the last word on that one oh 
All right, fine. Um, Our next sponsor this week is Mask of Shadows by Lindsay Miller. It says, I needed to win, they needed to die. Sal Leon is a thief and a good one at that, but gender fluid Sal wants nothing more than to escape the drudgery of life as a highway robber and get closer to the upper class and the nobles who destroyed their home. When Sal steals a flyer for an audition to become a member of the Left Hand, which is the group that is the Queen's personal assassins, they're named after the rings that she wears, Sal jumps at the chance to infiltrate the court and get revenge. This is the first in a fantasy duology. Uh, Mask of Shadows includes rich and complex world building. It will appeal to fans of Lee Bardugo, and there's a lot of y'all out there, Sarah J. Moss and Kristen Kishore. The story is about a gender-fluid main character named Sal, and it answers the call for more diverse YA as well. It's been featured on a ton of YA must-read lists, including Bustle's 13 obsession-worthy young adult fantasy books hitting shelves in 20. 17. It was featured on Entertainment Weekly. Lots of great buzz for this book. Again, it's called Mask of Shadows. It's by Lindsay Miller, and it is out now. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Speaking um, of fantasy books. Yeah, I was going to say, I added this at the the end. Um, V.E. Schwab, who um, wrote the Shades of Magic series, the last one, A Conjuring Light, came out this year, a series I really liked, um, an author I really like, got a big new book deal with Tor, a million-dollar advance for four books, including, as part of that, will be a trilogy called Threads of Power, which will be, be set in the same world as the Sage of, Sage of Magic, Shades of Magic series, and then a standalone book starring a female assassin in a future version of New York, which also sounds kind of—I'm sold, I'm in. Female assassins, future New York, I'm in. Um, notable here, if— I mean, in no small part, because I like Schwab, and I'm really interested to see what she does. Another series set in the same world. I really like that idea. Um, it's not a, It doesn't sound like it's a sequel or a prequel or anything like that. You're you know, building the world and then telling stories within it. I think that's a very cool idea. But also, we don't get too many of these big, giant announcements of advances um, for women in fantasy, especially. Um, and so it's notable that Tor is, is, is making this kind of financial commitment. Um, some talk on the Book Riot channel about, you know, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but this is for four books, basically over eight years, and after taxes and agents fees, like, it still kind of comes out to, I mean, really, a middle class, upper, I mean, I don't know, 60K a year after taxes and agents fees, which is a a good living, but it's not... I got a million dollar advance and now I'm, you know, drinking Cristal and yachting most of the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, I don't know if uh, Schwab still has a day job or not, but we've talked a lot on this show about how the vast majority of writers mm-hmm. have day jobs because the advances and the royalties are just not enough for a, sust- for a sustainable life. Um, so this is, I think, enough you could quit your day job pretty comfortably, you know, yeah. at least for the next eight or 10 years. Um, but it is it is kind of wild when you hear about like a million dollars for one book that you're going to write over the course of a couple of years. That's a huge deal. A million dollars for four books. That's a great big deal, especially as you were saying, for a woman author to have, and especially in one of the genres like sci-fi that we tend to think of as dominated by male writers that historically have had a lot of issues with patriarchal Mm -hmm. sexist stuff happening but it's just really not that much like Mm -hmm. it's just not that much over eight or ten years um it's awesome but it's crazy when you think about like this is that the industry hinges on most of the people who produce the art that the industry sells also having other jobs yeah it's a strange situation um how it's come to be this way um where I mean, I guess, I, I don't know what the comp would be. I guess something like Hollywood where you don't really own the IP if you're a screenwriter for a studio. They buy, the, they buy it from you, but then you get a bigger chunk. But then I guess, I guess what's the, the similar thing is the people who have the steady paychecks are the production side, the publishers, the studios, the lighters, the grips, the editors, mm-hmm. the, you know, all, all the people that go into the machinery. On the publishing side, the people with the steady gigs are all on the publishing house side. And the author side is very catch-as-catch-can. And, you know, by and large, these are people that are doing other things and moonlighting uh, as, a, as a writer. And Schwab, I think, is, I think probably would still keep her job, I would think. I mean, because the other thing is, if you quit your job, you're not guaranteed another book deal after this in eight years. I mean, she's a young woman. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not a young, young woman, but she's, well, she's, in, um, she's probably in her, 
I would guess mid thirties or, you know, not much older than that. So even when this book deal is over in her early forties, there's no guarantee there's going to be another book deal there. None. Right. That's true. And I would be interested in what she's doing there. If she Mm -hmm. has a day job, if she's keeping it, if she's quitting, but thinking about the possibility that she might have to get a day job again in eight years. Like who knows how sales of this are going to go, how the publishing industry is going to go in eight years. But when um, NK Jemison launched her Patreon several months ago, it was for that reason of being able to quit her day job. You know, if the Patreon could support enough, then she could add that to what she makes from her writing and be able to be a full-time writer. Um, It's, it's just such a strange landscape when you really consider it that way. Like, not that Victoria Schwab's books are on the same level of popularity as like the actors that we watch on right. big TV shows, but it's not like, you know, the guy Lee Pace on Halt and Catch Fire. It's not like he's going to work at Halt and Catch Fire mm. at night and then he's like showing up to an insurance office <laughs> in right. the daytime. It's it's a strange situation and um you know, you can imagine in an alternate universe where authors are more like employees of publishing houses, like kind of like the old studio system where you'd have screenwriters working for Universal and they wouldn't get, you know, pieces of the action, but they would get steady paychecks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, it, it's it's super fascinating to think about because the power law stuff that goes on in publishing is so extreme. You have people making billions of dollars over multiple decades, and then people we've heard of, you know, writing really good books who couldn't pay themselves, you know, basically a kindergarten teacher salary, which is not a lot, but it's some and has benefits and, you know, has some flex time built in. But just that's, it's a remarkable thing that we don't think about and talk about enough, I don't think, um, to remember that books that are written by people you know that win awards Oh yeah, are subsidized by all kinds of things. A lot of them are teaching positions or grants or spouses or family inheritances. But the publishing industry really does rely on authors writing for not very much money mm-hmm. for and its the current ones business that model to aren't work. Subsidized by jobs like that that are somehow related to writing. It's you know it's they're just normal everyday people jobs, yes. data entry jobs, mm-hmm. being a um, executive assistant to someone. I know several authors who like they go to work you know from nine to five just doing sort of clerical work for some person or some company. It's a job that doesn't require much mental activity so that they can focus their you know brain juice on the writing that they're going to do early in the morning before work and then late at night after work. But it happens so much. And it's this very hush-hush thing. Like yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on there where uh, there's publisher investment in having it appear to be glamorous to be an author. Um, and authors have a lot of sort of investment in that notion as well, but just also a lot of, there's like a lot of personal pride stuff that comes up in like, we don't do a good job at normalizing the fact. Like this is incredibly normal mm-hmm. that writers, um, for good or for bad, that writers most of the time have day jobs. And we don't talk about the fact that that's real and normal nearly enough, that the people who get to quit their day jobs or who like John Scalzi has a deal right now for what, like $13 million for... No, a million dollars for like 13 books or something, right? Oh, was it... or $3 million for 13 books, oh, something Oh, $3 million like that? for 13, something like that. I, I know it's it was 13 like books and a couple million dollars. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's, I mean, that's a great deal. John Scalzi is not showing up at an insurance office on Monday morning, Um, but that's super, super rare. And we don't, we don't do nearly a a good enough job talking about it in the industry, in the industry, much less like the average reader who thinks what, thinks they know what an author's life Mm. is like, like, and if you've ever been to a writer's conference, you've seen that happen in real time where an agent starts talking about the realities of an advance, like a typical advance for a literary novel or how royalties work and how infrequently people earn out their advances and actually get royalties. And you can just see faces fall all over the room of like, Oh, but I thought when I got my first book deal, like then it would be made. And that's just not the case. No, no, it's not. (laughs) It's not at all the case. And, And there's, there's, the two sides of looking at that one is there's no you know there's no making it or that's very very it's like it's the lottery almost you know Mm -hmm. um that way but on the other hand it means that if you want to write a book and you've got something you want to write you can do just like the quote-unquote pros do and write it on nights and weekends and mornings on vacations and like you know you're not that you don't have they don't have these giant blunt chunks of time magically where they're sitting around breadloaf for um yado 
right? I mean, some of them mm-hmm. do, but they've won those awards and done other things, but they're not doing that all the time. That's a very, uh, a very unusual thing. So I don't know. This is not meant to be a pep talk or a downer, but like you too cannot succeed like authors you've heard of. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that goes to like, if you are trying to be a writer and you fail, it's not because you had to work a day job. Right. That's a good way (laughs) of thinking about it. Toni Morrison was working a day job as Mm -hmm. an editor at Random House when she wrote The Bluest Eye. And that's a good, like, that's a pretty good day job, especially for the connections that it gives you as a writer. But that those are demanding jobs and editors aren't just working at their desks from nine to five. They're reading Mm -hmm. at home and editing in the, in the off hours often too. Those daytime hours are like business hour. Right. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely like, um, you know, again, I've been, I've got annotated on the mind. So a lot of the, the background research I was doing into how these authors were making money, you know, James Joyce is hustling to get patronage and Mary Shelley is like, you know, editing other journal and en- editing journals and the the whole bunch of stuff going on. You know, famously T.S. Eliot worked as a bank clerk for most of his life before, I think up until he won the Nobel Prize, which has a nice little check with it uh, in case you didn't know that. But like, this is not a new, this is not a new phenomenon either. This is not like some digital disruption. Amazon did this to us sorts of thing. Like this is sort of the story um, uh, of literature on the, on the supply side um, from authors. This is kind of the story. So anyway, um, where do we want to go from here? Hmm, let's see. Let's talk about this library privatization. Yeah. The, I had never, is, I didn't even know this was a choice. I had never heard of this happening. I didn't either. Um, this happened last week, actually, and mm. it just didn't make it into our show last week. But um, the citizens of, or, or the city council in Escondido, California, voted three to two to begin the process of outsourcing the city's library service to a private company. Uh, the citizens of Escondido were not overall pleased about this. There were a lot of protests, a lot of angry residents, more than 250 people showed up to the city council meeting. Almost all of them were opposed to the plan, and they pleaded for hours with the city council not to move forward with this. And the contract is with a Maryland-based company called Library Systems and Services. Um, But the mayor, joined by two city councilmen, voted to pursue the arrangement. It's a for-profit company um, in order to try to save $4 million over the next 10 years in operational costs, and more than that in future future pension payouts. Mm. Um, So privatizing, you know, Librarians, I guess, then are no longer public civil servants under. Yeah, I don't know anything about this. So this is one. If you're a librarian or you know or you know anything about this, maybe work in in local government. I don't have much of an opinion about this at this point because I don't know anything about this. Um, You know, my only reference is like private prisons, which doesn't seem to Mm -hmm. me to have been an awesome uh, road that we've we walked down a lot of places. Um, I can certainly see that if you save four million dollars, especially it doesn't. I don't think this is a huge town. I don't know much about Escondido, but four million bucks out of the library system might be very attractive. And I, it might. The future pension payouts is the thing that jumped out to me. Mm-hmm. Is that city employees a lot of time has very very good benefits, and you might just be replacing you know very reliable high wage, relatively high wage, good benefit jobs with you know, private jobs, which don't have to have a 401k, don't have to have, you know, as good health insurance, you know, all those sorts of things that go into what sometimes private companies can do to cut corners to save money. Mm -hmm. Um, Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, you know, I think those are interesting aspects and concerns for it as well, like uh, in terms of what kind of impact does this have on the quality of services that mm-hmm. the community will receive from their librarians if who the librarians are changes in order to make it cheaper to pay for the librarians. But I was also thinking about issues related to the collection. Yeah, it's one of the sort of cornerstones of the library as a public service is that librarians are yeah, like librarians are committed to not embedding their own personal ideas and biases into the collections most of the time mm-hmm. um, that they will bring in books that their community requests if even if they 
personally disagree with the ideas contained in those books or, I mean, you get the idea. Um, They can choose like anywhere not to stock certain things, but the library as a public service is charged with providing material for their community. And if there's interest in the community or if the work would have some utility, the librarians typically bring those things in or are supposed to bring those materials in. But when you're talking about a private company, that, I think that piece of sort of responsibility to the community also goes away. The Mm. private company's responsibility is to their shareholders. Shifting that core focus from doing the best that you can do for your community and providing services that serve the community over to serving shareholders saving money on pensions. Um, it, I think that raises some red flags for me about like what would happen if, um, if community members wanted, uh, say, a bunch of liberal books and the board of mm. the company is conservative or vice versa. Um, how does that shake out when it's not about serving public interest? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't, I don't feel um, burdened to have to make a generous reading, but I don't want to also say that since this is something I know about that I'm going to basically condemn it, right? Like, I just don't know what the pros and cons are. are is the only pro money? Is there some other pro I don't know about? Um, it seems to me that a for-profit-oriented company will have motivation to cut corners. On the other hand, libraries and city governments also want to save money so where how are the how is it that a private company can do better, right? There there has mm-hmm. to be some reason, and what is that reason, and what are the effects of that reason? I guess that's what it comes down to, right? But it's also I don't know if this has been done other places, but um, I was reading recently about the history of the Carnegie Library system. You know, basically in the late nineteenth century, Andrew Carnegie's foundation gave, I think, inflation adjusted something like two and a half billion dollars to open up thousands, literally thousands of public libraries in the U.S. and basically created the U.S. public library system as we know it. And this is a reversal of that. Um, and the library system, as we've come to understand it, you know, small libraries and small communities open to the public. Basically, all you need is a driver's license. That's a thing. Um, will this, for example, how, how onerous will the collection um, practices be for late fees? Are they going to jack that up? Like, you know, all these things we've seen recently happen that libraries are backpedaling and softening their stances on collecting late fees what, because they feel like it is a hindrance to people actually using the collection. Will this private company have the same motivation? Will they be willing to waive late fees so that people can check out more books? Yeah. I don't know. And how will they, and, and then how will the city council evaluate the quality? Cause it, um, one of the council people says there, the count, the chair says, if LSNS, which I guess is the company that's doing it, doesn't make it better, I will break the contract after one year. Well, as we both know, one year is not a lot of time to get results. And two, what is make it better? Right. What does that even mean? look like? Is it just cost savings? Um, what what uh, bill of goods have they been sold and how much of that will be fulfilled? Um, I'd never heard of anything, so I'm just super interested in this. Oh, yeah. This is another good one. Lots of y'all are librarians yeah. and know things about this. Please do email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Have you heard of this before? Has it gone well or not gone well? What would you think about this happening in your library where you work? Mm-hmm. Um, we would love to hear from people who know more things than we know. Yeah. Speaking of libraries. Do, uh, speaking of libraries. Ah, there it is. Yeah. So September is library card sign up month. So that's start by the time you're hearing this it will be September. And if you're not currently using your library, there's never been a better time than now. In addition to the great community programs and tools libraries have always offered, a library card enables you to get 24/7 access to ebooks and digital audiobooks through Libby. Overdrive's new one-tap reading app. Simply download the free app, put in your library card number and you'll be instantly connected to thousands of books on your smartphone smartphone or tablet. Visit meet uh, I think you have to use the S there. So HTTPS colon slash slash meet.libbyapp.com. There'll be a link in the show notes there if you just want to click, especially from your smartphone. For more information, be sure to sign up for a library card today if you haven't already. I've used Libby. It's really a great improvement for OverDrive and people that use ebooks and audiobooks through your library that um, has those things circulated through OverDrive. Really recommend you check it out. It's back to, back to school, fall reading, the winter, fall. Um, for me, better than summer for reading, but that's not universally true, even though maybe it should be. Uh, really suggest you go check out Libby. Check it out. Um, it's, it's, you know, audiobooks and ebooks through Libby is great, but the thing that I find is great is like I don't have to get to the library. 
Like I prefer print, but you know, it's hard to get the library sometimes. Just life is going on. The hours don't fit your work schedule. Don't, can't get there on a Saturday. So you can enjoy your collection from your home um, at any time. So go check out Libby. Really recommend that. All right. You're up. Or actually, you All picked right. the last one. I don't know where you want to go from I'm here. going to the new Lord of the Flies yeah. adaptation. <laughs> Uh, and I'm ready to dismiss it wholly out of hand. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I'm too. This one is not that yeah. interesting to me. This is uh, Warner Brothers announced this week that there's going to be. Now I'm here for the pitch until the very last part. There's going to be an all female remake of Lord of the Flies, um, and that sounds really interesting to me. Libba Bray did a sort of take on this in the book Beauty Queens about a bunch of girls um, who are, I believe, are actually like competing in a pageant, and their plane goes down, and mm-hmm. it's basically Lord of the Flies with a bunch of teenage girls. A few years ago, that book is a lot of fun. Um, I haven't seen the old movie of Lord of the Flies. Hopefully, people are not as attached to it as they were to Ghostbusters, so we won't have to endure no, like no one cares about the months original of, of lamentation movie. about how we're ruining your childhood by making a new version. But here's the kicker. The all-female Lord of the Flies is being written and directed by two dudes. Yeah, I was out way before that. I mean, it's been a while since I've read of the Lord of the Flies, but I have. And it's so much about being an early teenage boy, like... The early masculinity stuff is such a part of it. I mean, I guess the, again, you don't know what they have in mind, and the to-do things doesn't give anyone any kind of uh, assurance that it's going to be handled deftly, let's put it that way. But if, if the idea is just we get a bunch of early teen girls and they're on an island, see what happens, it seems like what Golding is, I mean, and I think Golding uh, had talked explicitly about this is about boyhood and manhood and civilization and repression and all those things like that. Just so hard to mm-hmm. see, like, I guess aside from the basic setup, how is it Lord of the Flies well, if it's if yeah, it's girls? I would, I would honestly rather see like a remake of it with all boy actors by a female no, director. That's interesting. Because so much of Lord of the Flies is almost directly about toxic masculinity. Yes, right, <laughs> like we didn't we didn't have that term for it when I was reading Lord of the Flies in school, but that's what the way yeah. that we would talk about it if this book came out now is this is a story about toxic masculinity, about uh, aggression and competition mm-hmm. and what happens with a bunch of boys in a very tense situation because our culture does a terrible job at socializing boys to deal with emotions and social situations. We socialize them to rely on the girls for that and then we socialize the girls to just take care of it like everyone's Hermione um to some degree and it would be really interesting to see a feminist director take on a look at a bunch of boys in that same situation like I think the obvious concern about two dudes putting a bunch of girls into this kind of tense situation is will it just be a bunch of stereotypes about you know Mm -hmm. you can't put a bunch of women together or they'll all cut each other off at the knees and it'll be catty Um, and maybe it'll be great I don't know but I'm uh, I'm not I'm not filled with hope Mm -hmm. about it I there I think are so many more interesting things you could do with Lord of the Flies especially with where we are in talking about the construction of gender. Yeah. Now. Did we talk about the gender flip Dorian Gray on the show? Did we do that? Oh, I don't think so. Or if you did, it wasn't yeah, when I was I don't here. Think, I don't, I can't remember now. But anyway, St. Vincent is producing and directing, possibly anyway, mm-hmm. shepherding, creatively shepherding a um, gender flipped version, a movie version of uh, Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, which I think, I don't think has is quite as fraught in terms of it being about masculinity though it certainly is and wild is in a, a unique position to reflect on those things um, pardon pardon the, the pun um but uh that one i guess i don't know what you guys think out there too or where Be- you rebecca think i guess i'd rather just have like just give us the news stories that center women with stuff like this like mm-hmm. why feel fill these old vessels um, that have their baggage already like i don't know what work it does like w- why not do libra bray's book is it the the cultural cachet of like, oh, gender for Lord of the Flies, like people know what that is and they don't know what um, the Libra Bray book is? Is that is it a, is a strictly sort of marketing know, idea or is there some other artistic reason to do it? I'm a little confused about that. I've been wrestling with that too because I'm super excited about HBO's upcoming remake of Fahrenheit 451 yeah. in which most of the main characters are black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter to that story yeah. at all 
that like Guy Montag reads as white in the book, but it doesn't matter if you rewrite him as a black man, except in the ways that black men mean different things. Right. In our except culture. that it and does so that, mean something, like, right? Yeah. Except that it yeah. except that it does. It doesn't really matter that he's white. It really matters if you then make him not a white man in the story. And I'm so interested in how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I've been sort of like sitting over here trying to untangle why I think that is so interesting. But but right, this like taking an old story like Lord of the Flies or yeah, I'm not super excited. I like St. Vincent a lot, but I'm not super excited about this um, gender yeah. flip take on Oscar Wilde either. And I can't quite get to, aside from just personal taste, what it might be about um, that Fahrenheit flip with black stars mm. being more appealing to me than putting girls into these boy stories. Um, yeah. I, I think the thing about Fahrenheit 451 for me, at least, cause I, I feel similar to you and I, and I think some of it is the story feels in a way urgent. Like it needs to be updated in a way like mm-hmm. it needs, like it, the, the issues are still it, it, even in that format, still relevant where Lord of the Flies is such sort of a thought experiment, kind of a plot that to explore similar issues f- for women feels like it needs a different shape than to just yeah. pour it into this, this pre-existing mold. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray stuff, I mean, that is a lot of that. Again, it's been a while since I've read it, so I could be completely off base here. I, I do apologize if I am. A lot of that is about internal morality and vanity and not universal themes, but that can be flipped a little bit easier, I think, than The Lord of Flies. I mean... It's a whole bunch of like 13-year-old dudes. Like that's so intrinsic to what it is that it just feels like I don't know what you're going to get. It's going to be a different thing, which is fine. So why call it Lord of the Flies? Like I'm not mad about right. it. I'm just not in, I'm not I'm not I'm trying not to, I don't want to I'm not the Ghostbusters person that's like you're ruining my child. I don't think it's like I just I don't know, it just feels like there might be a more interesting way to tackle issues of early womanhood, I guess is what we would say that's not just sort of using a pre-existing pattern, which may or may not fit. You know, and maybe I think that's what it is, is that Lord of the Flies is so centrally about masculinity yeah. that it's not this. It's not even close to the same kind of story when you just insert a bunch of girls mm-hmm. into it. Because the way that we socialize masculinity and the way we socialize femininity are so very different. Yeah. Um, and that's a, it's a much less severe switch to make the main characters of Fahrenheit 451 be black men, but the story is also disconnected from issues of, as Bradbury told it at least, the story is disconnected from race and there's not any gender stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Like you could rewrite Fahrenheit 451 with a woman firefighter and that would actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, I super want to read that too. Um, But it matters less. Gender and race aren't part of that book and gender is such a part of Lord of the Flies that we've constructed these genders to be very, very different. (laughs) And if you switch them, you're, you can't just like, you know, have put in a nerdy girl that everyone calls piggy and have the same things happen to her and have it be the same kind of story that you're telling. Yeah. I mean, I do think that we are, we are approaching the limit just in this conversation of what's possible by updating gender flipping race bending pre-existing stories because as you say it does and doesn't matter that guy montag um is white or black because then once he's black or once he's um uh you know patricia montag that's those identities have meaning that the story itself hasn't accounted for and if you don't account for it then it is kind of odd, right? It sort of says mm-hmm. suggests that these identities don't really matter when they do. So I just think it's like wearing the wrong, it's like almost wearing the wrong suit. Like you can get it on there, but it's kind of ill-fitting and it doesn't quite account for the real bodies underneath. So I guess I'm more, I'm always more on the, on the line of let's tell a story about early womanhood that doesn't depend on the Lord of the Fly structure. Give it a structure that makes mm-hmm. sense for that story. Maybe don't, I mean... Fahrenheit 451 is a little bit different. I'm more interested in that, but maybe um, a story where women and people of color are fighting against the same kinds of pressures that Bradbury's talking about 451. Just don't call it that. Maybe do a story about vanity that maybe has a gimmick in it that doesn't use the hermit shell crab of uh, picture of Dorian Gray. I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm, I don't have a... I'm not a zealot for either position, but that's just kind of how I feel yeah, about it. Yeah, I think... So you're talking about more of a like... 
inspired by. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. Kind of like, you know, how you know, the, a great example is how Clueless is inspired by Jane Austen. It's not mm-hmm. a retelling yeah. of Jane Austen. Right. It's an inspired by or right, which those things like that. I guess that. The, li- like the Libra Bray is a good example that yes. sort of inspired by, like you don't get a book like Libra Bray, Beauty Queens, if, you know, decades prior, Lord of the Flies hadn't been written no. and wasn't embedded in cultural consciousness. Um, but it's it's definitely inspired by. It never was yes, presented as exactly. a, a retelling or a gender-flipped remake. Um, and I guess part of that could be that they weren't even really marketing books up that way mm-hmm. when Beauty Queens came out. But the, I like that idea to take these core issues that the book goes to and then fit them to what's going on today slot you know like take the material this very rich material that we have with new ways to tell stories today and go in that direction um and it's i mean i get it like it makes a good advertising hook right all girl lord of the flies well we're talking about it i mean you know like you win marketing dude that thinks this is gonna be something you talk about (laughs) even though like they won and the whole segment is like this is gonna be crap well you know there's no press like you know what's it, what's they say? All press is good press, which I, it can't like possibly that. be true. Except Donald Trump got elected, so I don't know what's true anymore. I don't know what's up is down. <laughs> Everything's a disaster. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> Where do you want to go? I don't know. Let's do world's fifty largest publishers. Uh, our uh, Jan, who is our um, sales director, he shared. I think he was the one that dropped us this slack initially. He j- jumped on it right mm-hmm. away. Sometimes he's looking for clients and everything, and he was just shocked to see how high some of the publishers he thought were much smaller than they are were and so we had to remind him well it's such a top heavy industry you know pearson which is the parent company of penguin random house i guess they shall share some of it with bertelsman well pearson and bertelsman are one in four just because both of them own almost half of random house Right. right so like and then relx group i think is an educational publisher, and then you get to Lagardere, which is Hachette, and you know all the way to Scholastic. Uh, it, so, well, just for example, the number twenty-five group, which is the Edgemont Group, and I don't even know what they are. They did six hundred and five million dollars in revenue last year, and the number one did ten x that. So it's a power; it's an order of magnitude different. To go from just twenty-five to one, right? And the difference between the number one spot. And the number 50 spot is like 30x. Yes, 30x. Um, it really drops off. I guess, yeah, it's a pretty smooth curve after you get down to about a billion dollars in revenue. Um, and there's also a bunch of Asian publishers that I'm not um, equipped to speak about uh, cogently. Um, I, th- You know, one I thought was surprising... Just and maybe it's because it has university press. Oxford University Press mm-hmm. is number twenty, almost a billion dollars in revenue. It's like, geez, Louise. Simon and Schuster is number twenty-three, and I would have guessed higher that it would be higher. Yeah, let's that's, see anything else that's interesting Simon on Schuster, here. That's the smallest of the big. I mean, some of them are holding companies that you don't even know what they're actually talking about, right. like which ones. Um, and let's see the the interestingly, Bertelsmann and Pearson that own Random House are a UK and German company. <laughs> so the biggest US only company is Apollo Global, which is McGraw-Hill, which is mostly mm. educational topics. Textbooks. And then yeah. Wiley, which is technical books, is number nine. And then Scholastic, as you know, uh, you know, is children's and young adult. I think it tops out there. Then so HarperCollins is kind of the first wholly owned you actually, it's the first one that's only a publisher, but isn't it owned by oh, it's owned by News Corp, right? So, mm-hmm. um, it's a U.S. HarperCollins number twelve, and as we know in the U.S., HarperCollins is the second largest U.S. publisher, and so it's the twelfth largest in the world. But even by itself, it's like one, it's like a fourth of what PRH does. It's hard to parse from these numbers here. Um, anyway, it's it's a it's an interesting list to peruse just to see also the international. Um, you know, again, we know that we are U.S. consumers of books and also of book industry. A good reminder that the book world is big. Oh, so many Japanese publishers in the top 20. Um, on a per capita basis, I'd like to know how this list shakes out because it looks like they have like they have 10 or 15. No, maybe 10. 10 of the top 50 publishers are Japanese. I didn't see a Chinese company on here, but I don't know... Um, I don't know how Chinese companies break out their earnings. Maybe it's not eligible for a variety of reasons. I have nothing to do with actual size, but more about what we know um, about it. So 
anyway, there's that. Check, check that out. I think that's a that's an interesting list to be reminded, A, how top-heavy it is, and B, how international um, publishing is because books are not, you know, they don't care about borders so much. Uh, anything else on that? No more thoughts about that. It's, it, the, my big takeaway from that list also is it's such a good reminder of not only how many books are out in the world that you know are not from the U.S. and U.S. centric, but how many publishers there are out there and how many books there are that like we're just never even going to. Oh yeah, be less aware of. the existential um, dread of how many books there are. <laughs> there yeah, are. yeah. I kind of find it exciting, but I know a lot of people are like just so sad that they will never read most of the books. Yeah. Um, a quick piece of follow up: I mentioned last week when we were talking about YA scandals, what was going on with Pen America, and there's a good piece on HuffPo this week that breaks it down in more detail. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But essentially, Penn Center USA um, named the book Stealing Indians, which is by John Smelser. He's a young adult writer as one of the four finalists for the literary award in the YA category. Um, And he's built a career around his native identity, writing fiction, poetry, and YA about the Atna people. Um, Those are Alaska Native people about his heritage and uh, he's found reasonable success and the books have blurbs from like Chinua Achebe, like I mentioned last week, J.D. Salinger, Norman Mailer, and he's claimed to have a PhD from Oxford. But there are many questions about many elements of the things that he has claimed, um, including the fact that the Oxford degree is non-existent and uh, Chinua Achebe was dead at the time um, that he was supposedly blurbing this book. So if you would like more on um, that uh, discovery and also on how how Penn America has responded to it. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's a worth worth reading that. Um, kind of a remarkable story of what that dude has tried to pull yeah. off. It's very strange. The, the stuff people do that they think no one will ever catch on to. I guess maybe someday I'll stop being surprised by by that. But I just uh, it baffles me. Um, that's our show this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Rebecca's off next week, so Amanda's going to be uh, jumping on board. We're going to be in the, the full, full-throated full um, August talk. Uh, excuse me, uh, autumn talk. And uh, Lots of news starts happening in the fall. Award season starts coming up. Um, a lot of interesting things are going on. You can find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, you can email us. We, what do we want to hear about? We want to hear about what you thought about the... The, uh, uh, library Pratchett, privatization. Library privatization. We've got lots of feedback. The, the, what do you think about gender bending, race bending books? And the reaction we're not interested in is keep it sacrosanct and don't touch it. That's that's not interesting. We've heard that argument and it's mostly not interesting. Um, but you know, these a little more. Give us a little. Give us a little curveball um, about what you think and how. What are, if you're going to try to update Lord of the Flies? How would you do it? What do you think is interesting? Are you excited about these things too? Um, and that's our show. Thanks so much to Libby, to the End of the uh, World Running Club, and to Mask of Shadows and Book of the Month for sponsoring this. Thanks. Links to all of those things will be available in the show notes. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>